Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone. My name is David Reed. Welcome to episode 15 of Dial the Gate. I'm well, I'm really glad to have you with me. I have Mr. Neil Acree, the last surviving composer of all three Stargate series, waiting in the wings here. We're going to be bringing him in momentarily. Um, so for this particular episode, we are going to, uh, I'm, so I'm going to have a call to action to invite you to share this with your, uh, fellow Stargate friends. Then I'm going to bring Neil in to have a conversation with him. And then after I get through my questions, I'm going to, uh, read off yours. So we have moderators standing by in the YouTube live chat right now. I believe it is Keith and Ian this time around, um, uh, also, I want to thank Summer and Tracy and Jeremy uh, for uh, helping me out through this process, as well as Jennifer and Linda, the Gate Gabber, for my. Uh, you guys are my right hands uh, for produ- for production assistance. So, thank you all for that. Before uh, we bring Neil in. If you like Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal if you click the like button. It really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. And please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click that subscribe icon. Giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last minute guest changes. This is key if you plan on watching live. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days on both the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. With all of that information out of the way, I'm going to bring in my guest and a man of the the man of the hour, a personal friend of mine, Mr. Neil Acri. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you? I'm I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm so glad to be here. I am tremendously happy to have you on, and you have been a part of the DNA of the show from the very beginning. I wanted to have Stargate music uh, at the core of the podcast series, and you made that happen. So thank you very much. My pleasure. My first time being on a show that I wrote the music for. (laughs) There you go. Extra extra treat there so how are you and uh what are you what you got going on i'm good uh you know i mean just uh you know been staying at home for a few months now like like a lot of us and uh i mean i have i have uh twin toddlers and uh you know I, i work from home anyway so i wasn't really going anywhere to begin with but it's been uh you know, it's been an interesting year in, in all respects, but it's been a good year, uh, you know, behind the scenes for me, lots of uh, really kind of uh, very special projects and, and cool things happening, some of which I can't talk about at the moment, but, uh, you know, some really exciting things on the horizon. And um, and it's been a very a creatively invigorating year. So you've managed somehow. to stay busy. But, yes. This is good. 
All right. I wanted to talk with you a little bit about a uh, a an album that I found on uh, Amazon. It's this little thing called The Velvet Machine. And it it's eclectic. It's it's not I didn't know what to expect. And I first put it on and I'm thinking this is cool. This is techno. Mm-hmm. And then there's some cuts that are almost practically classic rock. And then you've got new age kind of Enya kind of sounding. Where did this come from? This, this, the, the velvet machine, your, your album. Well, about 14 years ago, um, I was just looking for a, a creative outlet to do something a little different than, um, you know, the, the kind of more cinematic stuff that I was known for some more personal stuff. So I kind of I created a side project and, and started working on it and, you know, got busy and, and the career took up so much time that, uh, you know, it wasn't until 14 years later that I was able to, to finally get it out there. And it's been uh, one of those things that, um, you know, it's been fun to surprise people with it because, you know, you build up a, a, a reputation or a, a expectation of having a certain sound as a composer that doesn't mean that I haven't had this other side of me, you know, since the very beginning, since I was in high school and, and you know, making music. I, you know, five years before I decided to become a composer, I wanted to be a recording artist and make just instrumental albums and stuff. I never got to really, never got to release a, a commercially available album until this year. So it's wow. finally out there and, um, you know, it's it's been a major relief to have it out there finally a little nerve-wracking to you know the final stretch to to wonder is anyone gonna embrace this um nobody asked me to make it uh but it's done it's out there and uh you know if if anyone wants to check it out it's uh a very special project to me where can they go and check it out where where, what's your preferred all, all uh, streaming outlets. Um, that I have CDs for sale on on uh, Bandcamp, uh, but it's on you know Spotify, Apple Music, all the usual. All right, the Velvet Machine. I will be linking to it in the uh, episode notes below once we are done. Um, and congratulations, by the way. I know what it's like to have such a, a long gestating project just be out there. You know. And just to have it done is is a relief. And then it's like, is anyone going to care? <laughs> so, uh, but I hope. At the end it's... of the day, I felt like if, if if even one person got something out of it, then it would have been worth it. Good, you know. And and thankfully, at least one person did. So, uh, <laughs> a good friend of mine that I had known since my childhood, like, you know, emailed me right away and said, "This is you know, right up my alley." And I said. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I do enjoy it myself, too. So that, that's two. <laughs> um, what is the pressure like to know you're composing a piece which is going to be getting 10 to 20 million YouTube views and furthering a video game dynasty like World of Warcraft? I mean, you've composed every cinematic for that thing since Burning Crusade, which was the first expansion pack way back in the day. Uh, is that, is that overwhelming, exciting, a little of everything? A little of everything. I, I learned a long time ago to not think too much about it because obviously if you get caught up in the pressure of, you know, 
is anyone like it? Is it, you know, am I, is this going to be the best thing I've ever written? You know, the, the, that pressure can, can be stifling to say the least. So uh, I've just tried to do my best to channel that pressure into making it the best I can, uh, keeping just the blinders on and focusing on what's right in front of me. And I've done that with the smallest of projects and the biggest of projects. And really at the end of the day, if, if, if I'm happy with it, that's all I can expect. Um, you know, I, I can't, uh, you know, I just try to get it done and, and hope that everyone responds to it. And I've, I've been lucky enough that uh, I've been invited to participate in, in such, you know, projects that fans love so much, you know, uh, the, the fandom of the Blizzard games and even Stargate, you know, is, is something very special. And to be a part of helping uh, continue that legacy has been uh, a real honor my career yeah i guess it's just the, the the main thing that you have to do is just focus on the work and not focus on all the all the the lovely stuff that's hopefully going to come from it as well you just got to at the end of the day you know meet your deadlines yeah i mean you know whatever you're doing you know there's someone's gonna probably dislike it before they even hear it because they're they have certain associations or maybe you're you know writing a theme for the horde and you're and there's an alliance player that's like i hate the horde i'm not gonna like this no matter what there's like built-in uh animosity you know, kind of connections that people have to it yeah. uh and on top of that you know i mean you know everyone has different tastes in music and i just at the end of the day i try to create an emotional experience for the listener so regardless of of what you think of the music if you can have an emotional connection to the piece to the uh, the cinematic as a whole, or to the game as a whole, then I feel my job is done. My primary goal is to create an emotional experience for the listener. You have been lucky enough uh, to fly around the world to conduct live a lot of your music on stage. What has it been like watching this this rise in mainstream accessibility and just in, mainstream interest in video game music and watching it take such a prominent role in concerts around the world. I mean, before COVID, these concert halls were selling out with celebrations of video game music. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I'm so grateful that, that those concerts were happening and they will happen again. I have no doubt uh, getting uh, music appreciation of not only for video game music or film music, but getting uh, young people and families alike to go experience a symphony orchestra for the first time um, and to have been a part of, of that, of getting to conduct my own music, it's it's a dream come true, especially from starting out as a heavy metal guitar player when I was in high school and uh, never really, I always wanted to be in a, you know, a rock star and heavy metal band and, and never quite got there. Uh, and then to finally have the chance to be on stage in this completely different, you know, way, uh, especially to be, you know, conducting an orchestra when my background is is in rock like that. It's uh, uh, really just an incredible experience, not to mention the to truly feel at one with the music, to be uh, connecting with all the players on the stage. And we're often synchronizing to something, uh, you know, a large video screen that has the music uh you know, synchronizing to the video, which is incredibly difficult to to time it and have the orchestra playing along with it and everything. Uh, it's just like a, an immense rush. And uh, I can't wait to get back to that, you know, before too long. Neil, who are your 
your heroes, both um, personally and those you've watched and listened to uh, who have who have influenced you? Great question. Yeah, I, I mean, I always say John Williams because, you know, as a as a composer, not only is his, his music been a huge influence. I mean, you know, you can't deny the Star Wars influence. No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Bring me solo. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, John Williams, uh, not only in, in, with the music, but with the, the poise and the grace with which he's carried his career into his 80s, late 80s, uh, and to still be, you know, at it and uh, inspiring people. And um, I just, I hope to have that, you know, a, a fraction of that poise and grace at that age. You know, and, uh, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, you know, Joel's father. Um, yeah. getting to know him in, in the smallest way through Joel, um, you know, uh, an absolute, uh, a Titan in the industry. And as a person, a very, you know, larger than life, uh, you know, intimidating, intimidatingly <laughs> gruff yeah. guy, um, but incredibly talented and, uh, you know, just, I, you know, I've always admired his, his craft and the ability to, um, make such a, a significant musical impact with a, a simple statement. You know, he always, he was very no frills and kind of a very bold, uh, you know, musical kind of gestures that I always, uh, I always admired him. And and so the, the two of those men were, you know, working at the same time, they were friends, uh, you know, under contract with Fox around the time that, you know, Star Wars came mm -hmm. out because Jerry was doing The Omen and John Williams was doing uh, Star Wars. And um, so they were, they were friends and they were colleagues and yet very different people in, in a lot of ways. Um, but still, I, I, you know, to have been uh, grown up with their music and, and to get to work in the same industry that those, you know, giants, uh, you know, uh, made such an impact in, uh, it's, it's really been, uh, a continuing inspiration for me. There, there is a documentary that recently came out called score mm -hmm. and anyone that's, who's out there, I, I cannot recommend this film enough. And it, it mentioned, uh, in, in the bit that it talks about with Jerry, I don't even think it brings up his, his Star Trek work at all, which is an absolute shame, yeah. but it brought up his, um, his work on planet of the apes. And I hadn't seen the film in years. And I went back and I watched the original planet of the apes just for the music. I was like, I want, I want to see this thing just, just to listen to Jerry's score. And I'm watching this thing and I'm like, what's this guy thinking? It's so out there. I mean, he's throwing everything that he can think of to, to throw, um, to, to throw at that, at that, that movie. And it's eclectic and it's all over the place and it it works. I mean, the guy was a sick genius. He had an enormous amount of his scores thrown out because they were just not right for the film in, in the mind of the of the filmmakers. But I, I always take that statistic as a you know, not something to strive for, but like the reason is, is that he took so many chances. You know, he, yeah. the fact that it, the Planet of the Apes score is basically, you know, a percussion player is hitting kitchen bowls and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but it's so, um, it was groundbreaking at the time and it, it still is, 
you know, all these years later, so to, for somebody to take chances like that, and and he's one of the first, maybe the first person to use synthesizers in AO and that's right uh, film scores with with the Star Trek movie and mm-hmm. uh, and before even that, you know, it's it's amazing how far we've come in such a short period of time in terms of, of film music. When you look back at the the decades that have passed, there's there hasn't been that much time that has passed and yet this is this is an an industry that has evolved its sound so much mm-hmm. um tell us about the 14 year old neil um connecting with music like def leppard and then stravinsky and taking up guitar your your dad had a bunch of instruments around the house and started putting them away when you were around 14 is that right yeah yeah tell he, us, he tell always that story. Uh, you know, he played uh you know fiddle and and guitar and and like all these different instruments you play a couple songs on each and and the music was always around instruments were all around the house i think by the time i was 14 he'd kind of given up on the idea of of me picking up an instrument so he started to kind of you know put them away and uh you know just make room for other things in the house. Mm. And, uh, you know, once he, once he put them all away in the, you know, the back room, I'm like, I want to play guitar, you know, but I wanted to play, you know, heavy metal guitar because, you know, my friend Mike had, uh, turned me on to the Def Leppard Hysteria album and, and, you know, we listened to it. And before that, the only thing I'd really listened to on my own was, you know, Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> so <laughs> this was like a whole different, yeah. <laughs> It's like a whole different, uh, you know, world opening up, you know, hearing the, the, you know, the, the production and the, you know, the rawness of the guitar. I mean, Def Leppard Hysteria is one of the most produced and polished albums of all time, perhaps, but there's just something just uh, powerful and impactful about it to, to a young me. Uh, and I picked up guitar right away and I decided I'm going to, you know, be in a heavy metal band and then whatever with me just being a an angsty teenager i just was getting into heavier and heavier things metallica started to take over and then slayer and you know death metal and uh i was looking for a heavier and heavier sound and at some point maybe as you know towards the end of my teens i i realized there's only so heavy only there's only so low you can tune a guitar string or how loud you can get and at some point I heard, you know, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. And mm. I'm like, doesn't get any heavier than that. <laughs> you know, that's 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 the the next level right there. The Russian Revolution. So it was, you know, <laughs> so, strangely enough, my, you know, trying to find heavier and heavier music that led me into classical music that led me to orchestral music that led me full circle back to the film music that I grew up with. Because, I, you know, as a kid, I, you know, Star Wars and, and, you know, Superman, all the John Williams soundtracks I grew up with were always there and always a part of my, uh, you know, musical DNA. But I didn't realize until, you know, I started branching out from from the guitar that, uh, you know, there's a whole this whole different world of, of music that, w- that had already been there. And then, of course, combining music with with visuals took it to another level of impact. And, and that was wasn't still is to me the most powerful form of uh uh art form is the combination of the moving image and and music because 
you have it just affects all the senses mm-hmm. except for smell but that's yeah yeah <laughs> that's true <laughs> in that vein um is there anything specific that it, that attracts you to the science fiction fantasy uh genre is it just the the flexibility of the tapestry you can do anything with it and you know it's almost nothing's a wrong answer or is there something more specific I think the language of, of sci-fi music is, is something that has always uh, I've, I've always enjoyed of uh, the the fact that a lot of sci-fi scores are really just bold and uh, sweeping and thematic. Uh, same with fantasy, but um, you know with sci-fi you have I think the language of sci-fi music is uh, predominantly comes from the you know the planets from Holst the you know classical piece that. Uh, was written, you know, I don't even remember last century for sure. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, you know, you if you listen to it now, you'll you'll hear, uh, you know, bits of Star Wars and bits of uh, Star Trek, uh, certain kind of just tonalities and and modalities, things that uh, laid the blueprint for sci-fi music as we know. And and those that piece was in the temp score to Star Wars and. Uh, other composers throughout the years have have always gone back to it, and um, you know, if you if you listen to it, if you haven't heard it, I recommend you know checking it out. Uh, it's it's a beautiful a collection of pieces, each written for all the planets that were known at the time. Um, and if you're a fan of sci-fi music and you haven't heard it, you'd be surprised to hear how much of the sci-fi sound is is you know laid out in that piece so that language is just always something that uh i've enjoyed you know listening to grew up with and and always enjoyed writing it as well how did you get involved in stargate sg1 did did um did did sg1 or come first or did joel uh joel i mean i was a fan of sg1 for the first couple years that it was out before i even met joel I uh, watched it on TV. I, I love the the fact that there was a, a show that, uh, you know, just reminded me of the sci-fi shows I grew up with that kind of had, you know, you'd go to a new world each week and, you know, it was kind of an encapsulated show that, you know, had a, a you know, an adventure and, and, you know, things happened that kind of wrapped up to a certain degree at the end of the episode. Uh, just, you know, I always loved that. Um, so I, I was a fan of the show. And uh, at the time I was uh, doing... Uh, cartage of all things, which is this uh, job where you you set up musical equipment at uh, studios or deliver kind of a, a, a moving job of sorts. But I was mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of my career and needed a job and, uh, you know, seemed like, you know, this would be fun, you know, get to, to see, you know, recording sessions and, and stuff like that. And I had no idea that the first day uh, on the job, I was going to meet James Horner. And the next day I was going to meet Jerry Goldsmith. And for the next year or so that I did it, I, I basically, I got to be a, a fly in the wall on the Titanic sessions. And Oh my God, uh, you never told me this. Of, yeah. A bunch of Jerry Goldsmith sessions. And uh, I mean, pretty much every major composer that was working at the time, somehow we, you know, I just, it might've been just delivering a stand-up bass or like a, you know, walking through the studio. Yeah, the I'm box. off the floor. Yeah, anything. And, and it was, um, you know, it, it ended up being the best education I, I could have, I would have paid 
thousands and thousands of dollars to be able to, to sit there during a session in the back of the room and watch my favorite composers conduct and, and produce a session and hear the orchestra. And uh, one time Thomas Newman even asked me to, uh, you know, hit the hit an A on the piano to tune the orchestra. I was in the back, I was sitting by the piano and the piano player wasn't on the set. Yeah. There wasn't a piano player in the session. So I go and I'm about to hit it. And I'm like, you know, there's 80 musicians all staring at me. And I'm like, the, the keyboard might as well have been just no, you know, white or black. Yeah, key. where's like, the A? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and I was somehow managed to hit the right one. And it was all good, but terrifying. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And you, anyway. you told me about, uh, I think it was you talking about bumping into Jonathan Frakes during the production of uh, Star Trek vs. Contact. During the scoring, yeah, and no, Jerry no, was... it was insurrection. It was insurrection. It was insurrection. Excuse this is like me. Like one of the, yeah, one of the uh, first days, or you know, very early on on this job, it was at Paramount. Uh, they had a scoring stage at Paramount. It's long since been uh, turned into office building, mm. you know, offices and stuff like that. But it's great scoring stage with a lot of history, and uh, you know, Jerry was there, uh, you know, working on this, and um, I was. Uh, you know, Jerry walked by in the hallway. It's the first time I'd met him. And I was, uh, you know, technically working as his, um, his keyboard players, uh, you know, the guy that set his, you know, stuff up. Uh, and, uh, but he was a friend and he, you know, invited me to come to the, to the session. And so I, I said, hi to Jerry. I said, hi, I'm a, I'm a friend of Nick's and Jerry, without even stopping walking said, I didn't know Nick had friends. So <laughs> that was my first meeting with Jerry. Who later on was, you know, ended up being very sweet to me. Uh, but he had that kind of, you know, kind of gruff. gruff absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then like uh, an hour later, uh, I was in the bathroom and, you know, number one. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say well, number one when I'm talking not about. Not in the bathroom uh, context. Right. But John <laughs> Frakes uh, walks in and I'm, I'm you know, totally star as starstruck as I've ever been. Number and, one, uh, number one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I really walked into that one, didn't I? Wow. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, what what amazing uh, opportunity. So uh, anyway, so I I uh I have to say hi to him and, and I'm like uh you know totally like you know, I'm wanting to say hi to him, but I'm like so starstruck that I can't say anything. And um, you know, outside the bathroom, you know, he, he can tell that I'm like uh, you know, starstruck and he walks up and he says uh hi i'm i'm jonathan and i and i reached out my hand and and said thank you and <laughs> that's how i met jonathan Drake. oh my god although in the interim he follows me on twitter now so oh, I, I, I don't know how that even happened something you know i think i told that story on twitter and he he heard it and, and oh that's great i don't know how that even how that even happened but uh it certainly makes up for the awkwardness of and you gotta be careful what you say because people are watching yeah. And listen exactly absolutely yeah, I, I, I trust me every tweet it goes out i'm like you know how how is gonna read this <laughs> <laughs> um how'd you meet joel and how did that through that start? job is through the um is through the uh the cartage you know one of the first uh gigs we had was helping joel move his studio across town he he had gotten a new uh moving his house and his, his home studio to a new place and i helped him move and uh I remember telling him, you know, while we're you know, in the driveway at his new place, you know, that I was a big fan of Stargate and uh, really liked the music he did for it. And, and he was very, very gracious. And, uh, you know, at some point, um, 
you know, during the next, the following weeks, as he's getting set up in the new studio, my friend Nick that, you know, yeah. Jerry said, I didn't know Nick had friends. Well, Nick had had a few friends and one of them was Joel. And, and he told Joel, uh, you should hire this guy to, to help you set up your studio and uh, you know, sort old cables and, and dust, you know, things off and stuff. And that's what I did for, for a few weeks. And, um, you know, um, I was a young composer is very um, ambitious and, and eager to get, you know, working in the business and getting to work in, in the studio, which all was, was an incredible experience, you know, learning experience, um, you know, getting to, you know, it's very much an on the job, you know, this is like right in between seasons two and three of Stargate. So mm. before long we were, you know, cranking out, you know, Stargate season three and I was getting to, you know, kind of watch it all go down and, uh, you know, help out and, various you know ways of, of helping mix the cues and print the cues and all this and that and uh you know eventually that led to to helping write in the show which was again uh, a incredible learning experience to get to to have so young too i was i was very young did you ask for that or did he offer um i mean i was i the first one of the first things i said to him was i would i would love to do any writing you know for you okay and, so he was aware uh, oh yeah of course I probably I didn't tell him that often. Maybe once or twice a day for for a year or so. <laughs> so it's no, one of those, I, those things that I wonder about is like, how much can you? I guess it comes down to the person, but how much can you um, tap that goblet and say, "Hey, I'm 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 willing and able if you give me a chance." Yeah, no, I I was kidding about asking daily. Uh, I know. I, you just. <laughs> But I, but I, I think he knew that I was, I was really eager, and and I, you know, I want to say that I think some of my early uh, success, if you'll call it that, was sort of a being naive and not like really knowing my place and just kind of being like, hey, I don't care if I, you know, I've only been doing this for a couple of years and I'm, you know, really young and green and and maybe the music isn't as good as it's going to be someday. Uh, I just want to write and and you know I think that not not even like really thinking about where I was and and what I was asking uh you know eventually you know he saw an opportunity to to have me help out and um mm. and I I delivered enough that he asked me to do it again and you know I mean when you have two shows we started to get into the point where there was you know two shows going on and occasionally he'd do a movie it's just too too much work for one person to do. So, being able to kind of uh, fill in and and kind of help him focus on the the more uh, you know the, the bigger thematic writing and and the more uh, the key moments in the shows to really spend that time, you know. And I was you know young and worked really fast and yeah, yeah. Um, you know it's 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 how a lot of people start out. But I. I I'm always going to be grateful to Joel for not only getting me started on, on Stargate show, but, you know, introducing me to directors that hired me to do their movies who, who then you know, told their friends to hire me. And I can trace everything I've done back to Joel's, you know, working with him and then him recommending me to other people, even the game stuff, the game stuff wouldn't have happened without, you know, the, the Stargate, you know, at that point I had been, when I started doing games, uh, I had been composing for nine years and I was a co-composer on SG-1 and uh, had built up a reputation again that Joel had had really helped make happen. 
Wow. At Rick Chaddock, was he on the team before you stepped in or did he come later? Yeah, well, well before before I got there. And, and okay, Rick so he was, was a producer? He's, he was a music editor. Music editor. Got it. But but he was uh, Joel's right-hand man in every way. I mean, he, he kind of helped produce, you know, Joel's music and and was there and I mean he you know played guitar he he was in a band uh, in the eighties and nineties called uh, White Sister and Tattoo Rodeo like uh, two bands uh, that were very um, you know in the the Guns and Roses vein and you know stuff that I had kind of started out uh, you know listening to uh, so he was a guitar player and he played guitar on a lot of Joel stuff including all the you know the Soviet Universe stuff. Uh, when Joel kind of shifted the sound a little bit there, that was all Rick playing. Oh, uh, I did not know that. Yeah, because there's there's more um, kind of home front, like uh, uh, almost like a Western edge in some respects to a lot of the yeah. SGU music. That's Rick. Yeah. I'll be darned. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Call the Conqueror, I think, was a, a semi-obscure Kevin Sorbo movie that Joel had done, but it was like, you know, one of his... Uh, basically a combination of orchestra and heavy metal guitar and uh you know different a lot of people do that now but at the time it was kind of a different thing uh Mm. and that's also you know rick playing got it so So, you came into sg1 during production of season three mm -hmm. okay um yeah i mean it was i met joel before that and i was just helping in various capacities uh over the years and would kind of be Early on, it was is really about, you know, just kind of helping wherever help was needed, and I think that was my, the longevity of it. And I always tell, you know, young aspiring composers or aspiring assistants, you know, just find find a find something that needs to be done and be the thing that need that's going to help make that happen and kind of create uh, opportunities for yourself in that regard. So. I, there were probably times where you know, in between seasons where Joel didn't need me as much, but I'm like, I got out Photoshop and I made these nice uh, labels for his mixing board that were like, had this gradient, <laughs> this nice font on it. It was the stupidest thing, you know, but, but every little Joel bit helps. It. Joel loved it. And he's like, you know, would, would for years later with all the, the following assistants that would come and replace me, he'd be like, you know, you gotta be like Neil, you got you know, go the extra mile. I mean, look at these these labels here. You know, those. You know, he he, you know, spent hours and hours on these and and cost me a lot of money. You know, hourly if you think about it. But man, they're beautiful. You know. <laughs> well, and they help. I mean, it, shortcuts like that. You know, especially like any tools that we have. You know, it, they can really add up in the long run, in terms of how advantageous they can be. Um, can you walk us through the steps? of composing a typical episode of Stargate. Yeah, I mean, it would start like... Um, and I've got cutaways. Okay, yeah, so so the, <laughs> it would start with a spotting session. Um, and this is the same with uh, same with uh, movies and, and uh, game cinematics and that stuff like that. A spotting session where Rick and Joel would call uh, Brad and Robert and they'd go through the show on the phone, old school, uh, and they'd you know, before digital video, we everything would be on VHS tapes. So on the phone, they'd, they'd be like, uh, okay, you know, K 
countdown to play three, two, one play. And they both press the, because we were in LA and they were in Vancouver. So you're doing this uh, over a long distance. Uh, and so they would uh, watch through the show bit by bit and uh, decide where music would be. Nowadays, you'll have temp music that kind of uh, dictates the, the general style and feel of what the, what the music is desired to be. Uh, the editor will put that in. Uh, you know, with the help of the director or producer. But at the time, no temp music. It was all, the, the shows were empty. And uh, they would go through and figure out where every piece of music is going to be. Uh, talk about, you know, this, here's a new character. This is a new kind of uh, uh, character uh, thread that might be going on, mm. uh, carrying on through future episodes. So maybe we should have a theme that's going to, uh, you want to establish early on. Just kind of get, you know, be able to see the bigger picture beyond just the one episode. Um, and then Rick would go and, and take uh, all the notes and, and make a, a sheet that had all the timings on it so we'd know the lengths, uh, which is very important in, in TV music, TV production. You have to kind of have a, an idea of, uh, you know, what the challenge is going to be ahead of you that week, how many minutes of music have to be written. And, you know, the the... The mixed dates are going to come whether you like it or not, and you got to be able to get that done. And we would, you know, write and, uh, you know, have to to basically produce and orchestrate and do everything uh, all in that time. Uh, but the next step, and I'm sorry if I'm jumping around here, but the next step would be, you know, a planning phase, where you know we'd kind of figure out, you know, who's going to do what, and um, you know, divvy it up and. Uh, you know, Joel would go and and uh, if, it, if the show needed a, a special theme, uh, he would start working on that and and give me that if if I was going to be expanding on that. <clears throat> and then, sorry, get some water. No, you're perfectly fine. fine. Spotting and planning. <laughs> and so the, you know, Joel would, uh, you know write a theme for the episode and, and a lot of the episodes had kind of even if it was a, whether it's a new character or even just a, a something that happened to be you know like window of opportunity for example you know it's mm. uh, just kind of a recurring motif because you have that groundhog day kind of vibe to it so there's there's this kind of a, a musical motif that continues over and over again kind of help kind of create a a feeling of identity to that show musical identity it's very specific um, yeah yeah. So, you know, a lot of times I would do, um, you know, uh, he'd assign me a, a particular thread through the show that kind of uh, allowed for some continuity. Uh, like if we were doing a show with replicators, I mean, Joel had written this great Jaws-esque uh, replicator theme. Uh, and um, if it were a show that had like a keep cutting back to the replicators throughout, I might, you know, take that, that segment um, just to kind of for one, be able to create a, a you know, a, a sense of uh, continuing momentum with each of the pieces. Uh, and to be honest, you know, you, you, you're having to create a lot of music in a short period of time to be able mm. to revisit uh, ideas. It's a lot quicker than having to start over and kind of develop something from scratch. Absolutely. No. Yeah. And then um, writing. Yeah. I mean, it would, you know, we would have to, you know, we'd... I'd say there'd be somewhere between 20 to 30 minutes of music in every episode. 
and we'd have about a week to do it. Um, Sometimes a little longer. Um, And there will be, you know, especially when SG1 and Atlantis were going at the same time, that's, you know, double the amount of work. Um, And we'd, you know, this was, didn't have the time or budget to do full orchestras. I mean, nowadays you're, you hear a lot of shows that have orchestra in it. That was very rare at the time. Um, so a lot of it was in the box, you know, samples and occasionally some uh, soloist here and there. And um, you'd have to pr- kind of write the music, orchestrate it, mix it all at the, all at the same time and uh, have, have to happen very quickly. But, you know, we'd always, you know, find the ways whatever way we could to really kind of give it the attention and the, you know, the polish that we would expect from, you know, a a movie, a cinematic score, because, you know, it's, it was a, a a sci-fi TV show, but it had the production value of, of a movie. It was, it was telling a story as big as any Hollywood movie. So that's what we tried to give to, to every episode. Wow. Was there a, um, like the more time that you spent with him, I would think that it, when it really got down to it, you could probably create a formula as to how much completed music he could he could create in, say, a day or two. Like if he's got this amount of time in the office, he's going to be able to generate this many seconds of completed music. Were you able to calculate that in terms of what yeah, both of your output have was? Like a, you kind of have like a rough... Uh, you know, uh, best case scenario kind of thing, worst case scenario, like we, we'd hope to only have to do about, you know, a uh, couple minutes a day. Those, those were the nice days, you know, you get to really spend a lot of time. And then, you know, sometimes you'd have to do eight minutes a day. And that's, you know, those are challenging days. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you, you're up for three days at a time. Sometimes... You know, it was it was rough, but it was exciting, you know, and, and maybe I'm romanticizing it uh, all these years later, but there's there was kind of a, an adventure to it, you know, just just every day we'd, we'd there'd be a new challenge. And, you know, sure. I, I miss Joel so much, uh, you know, just just part of it was the, the camaraderie of knowing that, you know, I might be working all night, but, you know, so was Joel on the other side of town and, uh, you know, we call each other up and. Uh, one time he sent his his friend uh, Gary over with a video camera because it's before FaceTime calls or, yeah. you know, yeah. Zoom calls. He sent his, because Joel's very curious uh, and, and just kind of had this, this sense of humor that was uh, unlike anyone I've, I've, I've seen. Sends his friend Gary over at two in the morning with a video camera to film me working and then report back and show him, you know, because he just wanted to see see what it looked like while I was working. Cause he was just maybe look, looking for a distraction in the, you know, in the midst of a uh, really, you know, intense deadline. deadline. That's the kind of thing he would do, you oh, know, God. <laughs> uh, whatever to keep it moving, man. Yeah. Step four, printing and delivery. Yeah. Every episode, um, you know, at the end we would uh, starting out was, was, uh, you know, digital tapes, a DA 88 tape was an eight track digital tape that had uh, time code synchronization. You could synchronize it with the uh, the videotape that we were working on. And this sounds so ancient now because now we had digital video and digital audio and everything. It's so simple, but we'd have an eight track tape and we would print, um, you know, we were mixing in 
So that would be six tracks. So yeah. we'd have two D88 tapes. If, if any time there was a cue that overlapped with another one, we'd have a second tape that was the B roll. And, um, you know, we would uh, you know, print it to the tape and uh, fed exit of the tapes, uh, fed exit to Vancouver with enough time for it to get to the dub where they would mix all the, the sound and the sound effects and the music and dialogue together. And then the uh, producers would then, uh, you know, review it in context with all the, you know, everything together uh, and have any uh, notes they would, they would send and, and we would address those as they had like a, a review, uh, a revision mix that happened a few weeks later. And sometimes, um, you know, we'd have to work with visual effects that weren't finished. We'd have like a, a blank, like a black slug that would say space battle for 20 seconds. There was nothing on it. And you know, you know, there's going to be these F-302s, you know, flying through the air and, and uh, you know, this firefight happening, but uh, you don't see anything. So you just kind of have to write something that you hope will kind of catch the, the mood of it. But then on this, we get another chance to go back and, and see the final visuals. And if we had to make any adjustments. Right. Well, I mean, if you're going to, sure, it's say 20 seconds of space battle. If it's one shot, you know, then I can kind of get that. But if you're cutting multiple times, if you're changing perspective, you're going, as a composer, you're going to want to know where those cuts are. Yeah. You know, yeah. even if they are just static or not static, but um, even, even if it all, it is all just visual effect. So, wow. You know, and if you have like, you know, spaceships flying through the sky with a certain movement, you know, there, there's always, I, I tend to be a very visual, um, visual composer in that I, I like to match what's on screen to, to the best of my ability without quote unquote Mickey mousing, as they call it, where you're hitting every little uh, detail. But I kind of like the music to feel like it's moving hand in hand with the visuals. So well, if the ship flies nice by, it. you want to have it like arc, like with the music. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. That is. So I think Rainmaker did the finishing. Rain, Rainmaker Digital. I, my understanding yeah, was they did the finishing sound. back in the day. And Sharp Sound? Yeah. Sharp Sound was where we mixed. And, uh, okay. you know, they were in Vancouver. And we were the only aspect of the production, I believe, that was uh, outside of uh, Canada. So, um you know, we'd send everything there and uh, eventually we'd start doing, you know, when digital audio became available, uh, you know, we'd be able to upload stuff. I mean, uh, well, it was available earlier, but uh, when it became practical to upload right. multiple tracks, I mean, you know, once we got past the, the AOL uh, 56K modem days. The BOD connection, yeah. Jeez, and that I must have, so did that lend itself to more time for you guys to compose or did production take it did. that? It, it, bought oh. us, it bought us an extra, the, the time it would have taken, you know, FedEx to send that tape up to Canada. There was, you know, maybe two days. That's you know, a lot. A for, yeah. A third day for, you know, just you want to get it there like on the Saturday before the, the Monday mix. Uh, so this allowed us to upload, you know, Sunday night and, you know. Were there... Not really asking you to tell on yourself, but were there ever situations where it was like, it's done, but I'm not happy with it, but we ran out of time and it's serviceable, but I'm not happy with it, but it's done. 
Does that make any yeah, sense? What, one of one of the the funnest things about TV, probably, or the the thing that I enjoyed the most about it was that it was when the show was done, it was done. You might get a chance to revise something, but it had to, you know, pretty much be done mm. the first time out when you sent it. So we didn't always have a chance to to second guess, you know. And that kind of really forced me to streamline my process and and really kind of find the the, the simple, most direct way to convey an idea uh, without having to. I, because when I when I have plenty, all the time in the world on my hands, I get obsessive about detail and in you know some of these you know cinematics I work on, I, I have months or even a year to work on all in. Uh, I'll get obsessive with the tiniest detail, but you know, not having the ability to do that can be uh, liberating in the sense that it, it really just kind of forces you to, to just focus, just get it out and hope that it's the best it can be. Because sometimes all that extra time spent second guessing yourself doesn't necessarily make it's it a better piece. Uh, sometimes you know you're able to. Uh, revisit things and and uh, you know observe them from uh, the perspective of you know a, a fresh perspective the next day and listen to it and say you know maybe I could try this but um, you know if left to my own devices I would you know write and rewrite everything that's why it took me the 14 years to finish my album I just I, I could never like I didn't know when it was done I just kept you know adding I mean, it's it's the problem with perfectionists. I mean, at, at a certain point, you know, art is just abandoned and it has to go out there in the world and, and do what it's meant to do. How did music from SG-1 evolve into Atlantis? I mean, I know that there's a lot of, like, if you listen to the music in Lost City, the theme of Atlantis is in there. And Joel talked about that a long time ago with me. He was like, well, you know, this works. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's, a, and he, he didn't intentionally mean for it to be that that kind of bridge phrase in the opening title theme to Atlantis. How did how did SG One musically evolve into Atlantis? Well, I mean, yeah, that that was the the ancients theme that you know was uh, story wise, it was a continuing arc that uh, you know evolved into a new series. So musically, it made sense to do uh, what. What I loved about Atlantis was, I, I personally, I love the the Stargate themes, uh, theme mm -hmm. and themes that David Arnold wrote. Mm -hmm. I love the movie. I love the music. It was, you know, when the movie came out, it was my favorite score, and it still is. Really, just a beautiful. It's a beautiful score. Sci-fi score. It's it's really I, one of my favorites. And to have gotten to work on uh, a series that was based on that movie and to get to play with those themes was was a lot of fun. Uh, but it was it was great once we got to Atlantis that it was time for for you know this is a new location a new um, new thematic opportunity and so Joel wrote this uh, beautiful new theme for it and also had you know these little uh, kind of all of his themes had elements to them that would then be kind of split out and and become elements for uh, you know the wraith had like a little motif and even in the the theme there. Um, so it was a chance. It was it was uh, a fresh new start to kind of uh, develop a new palette of themes. And Joel did some some really beautiful stuff for that. It, it, it 
SG one is very, um, it has, it has a very Indiana Jones kind of feel to mm. it. It's very adventure oriented and obviously, you know, his, his gold, uh, themes, he, he, he jumped off a lot of what, uh, David Arnold created in the in the feature mm-hmm. film the the cool thing about um of Atlanta the cool thing about Atlantis was it was both more of an action show but it, it had a uh, a maritime quality to it as well so it was very it had a lot of it just it, it felt like a very seafaring type of of theme mm-hmm. especially especially that main theme and I think it won him uh a uh, an Emmy nomination if I'm not mistaken Two two Emmy nominations, one for two the theme, them. and then one for the um, I think Grace Under Pressure, the uh, an episodic that's, nomination. That's right, that's right. And um, right. you know, I think the only reason he didn't win the uh, the the theme one is that you know Danny Elfman was nominated for uh, Desperate Housewives, and uh, just uh, nothing against that. No, he's a great composer. Was, that was the the thing at the time, and and um, but in terms of the actual quality of the work, I think. Uh, and and I'm glad they they recognized uh, you know him again with uh, the episodic nomination. Absolutely, um, we spoke a little bit about this earlier. But in, in what ways was uh, Universe an outgrowth of both of the shows that uh, that came before? Well, you know, musically it was uh, very different, I, in my opinion. Um, and that was you know just the aesthetic was was kind of exploring something new. Um, and, and Joel really, um, you know, I had, I had very little involvement in the universe because Joel really hunkered down and said, I'm going to do something, you know, really, uh, really special and, and, mm. uh, you know, personal. And, uh, and he went, he disappeared for, you know, weeks, months and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I'd go and I was kind of, uh, you know, st- kind of starting my, my game career at the time and getting busy and, but I wouldn't see him as often. And I remember coming over and seeing uh, Rick tracking, uh, you know, on the opening episode and uh, just some, just such a cool sound that show had. And uh, I'm glad that I got to contribute to it uh, a little bit along the way, but it was really Joel's show in, in every respect. The, the the music in SGU is my favorite of the music that he did. Uh, it not to say that he wasn't, um, you know, amazing when he was starting, but there was there was a, for want of a better word, maturity level to the the sound of SGU that was just so invigorating. It's the music SGU is is my favorite of the three, and in very many respects, the music is my favorite part of SGU. I think it's the most, the music sounds the most like Joel of, of all the series, because I mean, SG one was, uh, and certainly, you know, Joel's sound is, is all over them in, in, uh, in some regards, but SG one was a continuation of the, the movie sound. Uh, Sergey Atlantis was a, a continuation of that, but taking it in a different direction. Uh, SGU was like, Joel's like, I'm going to, I'm going to find a sound that's just this. And it was more his sound than anything I've, I've heard from him before. Was it very personal, very, um, yeah. you know, innovative. And uh, yeah, I was uh, still, I still love listening to that. Are there any specific motifs from Stargate um, that you are very fond of? 
I love the Atlantis theme, uh, and I love the you know the rising cue from the pilot that mm-hmm. uh, you know when Atlantis rises. Uh, one of the best pieces of uh, film music, let alone TV music, uh, that I've ever heard. And then I got to to kind of do a deconstruction of that when uh, Atlantis uh, submerged again and first strike, uh, first strike. So you know it was kind of fun taking that uh, you know deconstructing what Joel had done, kind of did it you know in reverse in a way. Uh, so that was probably you know and I, Joel worked on that theme a lot. You know he ha- had on his website all the you know, iterations he had done, uh, different versions, and kind of he had shared that with the permission of, you know, uh, Brad and Robert, uh, just to kind of show how a a TV theme can evolve and and what goes into it. And kind of, it it kind of took the idea and um, kind of simplified it from the original form. I wish that was still, I don't his website's long gone, but mm-hmm. I wish that information was still out there because it was really fascinating to kind of see how that was, uh, you know, developed over over time. And the end result, I think, was is one of the the best TV themes ever written. One of my favorite pieces of of what you did, and certainly the first strike piece is up there. But oh. it, I love your um, your callback to the Asgard yeah. in the Lost Tribe. The Lost Tribe where you take the Asgard theme and then you twist it inside out and say, this is not the Asgard. This is the Vanir or evil Asgard or whatever you want to call them. And it's, it's a two minute cue, but it just, I get tingles just thinking about it. Seriously (laughs) there. It says these, these beings, they look like our friends, but they aren't. And I just love how you, you took his theme and turned it inside out in two minutes. Yeah, this, that's what I love about collaboration is the idea that you can write something and have somebody else take it in a completely different direction and, and hear it in a way that you never could have yourself. And, uh, you know, getting to, to work with Joel's themes in that way was always, uh, you know, it was an education. And it was also, uh, uh, it, was just, it was just so much fun. It really was. Have you seen Thor Ragnarok? Uh, I have not. I've, it's been on my, my in my queue for too long. So there is a scene where uh, I, I don't know if you've heard, but the, uh, the 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 phrase the Asgard uh, Stargate Asgard phrase is in is hidden in the music. Oh, cool. yeah. It's it's a great nod. It, it can't be anything else. It's it's clearly it. Um, was it difficult creating music? that was in the vein of Joel, but wasn't directly just replicating his content when you were working alongside him or was the intent more or less copy my sound and move forward from there? Well, I mean, we, we tried to make a a unified sound. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, nobody wants to make a, a show sound like it's coming from multiple sources, uh, especially when they're multiple writers. Um, But it was, uh, you know, I learned, from Joel, uh, a lot of, I mean, I obviously had my own style and approach even going in, but I learned a lot from him about simplifying ideas and, uh, as I said, kind of creating the most uh, direct uh, way to convey an emotional idea um, through a simple sound or a simple melody. Um, So I think 
you know, working with him kind of helped me. Uh, there was a point where our, our sounds kind of were very close because I had learned a lot from him and, and was, wasn't trying to sound like him, but it just kind of, kind of, I had learned so much from him that kind of became an imprint mm -hmm. on what I was doing to the, to the extent that I still, every once in a while, I'll do something and I'm like, you know, ah, Joel, you know. Like That's where you come from. come from. Yeah, yeah. Be doing a drum solo in the middle of a key would be like, ah, Joel. He used to, <laughs> he used to joke about how, you know, uh, sometimes you'd have these really hard cues you're working on and, and you spend like weeks trying to find the right thing. And sometimes you get just to get to do a drum solo. You know, the whole key is just drums. <laughs> and uh, those, those are the gifts we get to you make up for all the hard ones we do. We lost Joel. Yeah. Um, 2013, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think Rick Jaddock wasn't a year later, I don't think. It was just. And it, was, it was about uh, fall of, of 2013, both in the same year. I, I mean, I, I, I met Rick once and I, I talked with Joel a few times, got to talk with him a few times and, and met him at least once. And I think about him all the time and it's there's there's just certain losses as he was a hero of mine that you just don't get over it just doesn't digest and um any any particular standout uh memories with with joel over the years well, you know joel was like a, a second father yeah. to me you know in a lot of ways um so it was more than just losing a musical hero of mine. It was, you know, losing like a family member, not like it was losing a family member. So um, he was, uh, you know, I used to, I remember calling him, I call him all the time whenever I had like a, just a challenge or some, something in my life that was, I didn't you know how to you know overcome or, or just needed some advice and he had done everything you know gone through everything that i had uh you know struggled with so he knew he had an answer for everything and sometimes it would be you know a humorous thing like uh i was scoring a john claude van damme movie and i called him just to you know say, hey I'm, I'm doing a van damme movie and he's like yeah hey, everyone's got to do it at some point you know? <laughs> as if to say that was like your requirement as a composer you, you know you have to do at least one in your career that you sounded know? a little like jerry coming through yeah. there it yeah. sounded like something jerry would say like oh well you know you're not that great yeah there was a lot of that. <laughs> but i mean just just like jerry you know they they had their their gruff grumpy moments uh -huh. but, then, but then you know they'd make you feel like a million bucks when you know when you needed it um i have uh, uh some fan questions here for you do you have the framed piece of memorabilia that we talked about yeah, Is I do. Nearby? Um, yeah, I, I brought it out. You told me to have it ready. Yes, and, please. So, so before I get to the fan questions, I wanted to sh have you show this off. So what is this? So so this was um, this was a a book that they gave us at the uh, the 10th anniversary party in 2006 in Vancouver. So we got to go, um, Joel and Rick and I went up to Vancouver. Um, it was my first time there getting to meet the uh, cast and the crew. Uh, and they had this party, you know, celebrating 10 years. Um, and it was shortly after the 200th episode uh, as well. 
Um, and uh, we got to, um, you know, they had this book they gave out and mm -hmm. uh, we'd have people, you know, sign it, uh, cast and crew. And uh, so I took the book and I took the two signature pages and I framed it because it's, you know, such a special, uh, such a special piece. So, I mean, my, the, the highlight of this thing here is right here, Don S. Davis, uh, what a, what a sweetheart that guy was. Uh, and, you know, as a fan of the show, not only, you know, from the beginning, but just you work on the show and you feel like you know the actors because you you see them week after week and and to finally get to meet them in person is like i i've known you for like 10 years now mm -hmm. or eight years or whatever uh and so so he he had uh recently he'd been doing some artwork and he had recently uh started a website with his artwork yes and uh, was telling everyone about it and he went so i don't know that night he must have I don't know how many people's books he signed or people he talked to every single one of them. He wrote out this, this lengthy thing saying, Neil, it was a pleasure uh, to visit with you. And if you're at the uh, 200th episode gala, if you'd really like to check out my artwork, uh, go to Don S Davis art, uh, com. He'd wrote, wrote at the website, every single thing he signed the entire night, wrote out the whole website. <laughs> and everything. And I love it. Oh. Uh, you know, Richard Dean Anderson right there. Absolutely. Uh, Christopher Judge, thanks for everything. Peace sign. To Neil, cheers, you uh, cheeky little bugger from Paul McGillian. Paul McGillian. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and uh, Claudia Black wrote, yes. uh, I asked her to sign it. And she's like, uh, you know, it's you're, it's gonna devalue your book. You know, you don't want you don't want to sign up, Mike. These you actors, me? you're like my you know, my favorite. She's she's great. Absolutely. Um, so she signs it saying like, you know, consider this devalued or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have my glasses on, so I'm like in trouble reading it. But um, David Hewlett wrote like, uh, Neil, you're keeping me from the food. Ah, uh, <laughs> that sounds like him. <laughs> yeah. And we had we had a chat recently. Uh, mm. You know, he, he had me uh, do an interview thing for a, a educational project he's working on. Talked for like hours, and he's just we had so much fun. He's a great guy. Uh, great guy. Um, but it's it's fun to to look back and and see these. You know, realizing that I'm this you know quiet kid that's coming up and bugging everyone in the middle of the party and asking the side stuff. Everyone is so nice. And you have production patches. I do, yeah. Got the Daedalus and the Atlantis patch and the SG one patch. Um, yeah, and this is—I had this up in my studio, and it's—it uh, is one of my favorite possessions. You know. Well, thank you for um, sharing. Thank you. It means for a great deal. To... Absolutely. I've got a few fan questions for you. Yeah. Shoot. Teresa McAllister. Um, so. Some of these questions may technically be for Joel. Um, so we're going to have to figure that out together. Yeah. Um, um, Teresa McAllister wanted to know, what inspired you to put heavy metal in Vegas? Well, um, and again, I'm, I'm speaking for Joel because I, I did a little bit of work on that one. But, okay. you know, it was, that was Joel's, uh, you know, and, and for anyone who doesn't know. What's that? I don't think he'll mind. 
Yeah, I mean, for, you know, for, for anyone that doesn't know, I was, you know, uh, so grateful to be able to help Joel on the show. And it was always Joel's uh, you know, vision for the music. Um, Vegas, um, Vegas was a very different show that you can find Joel in. He's one of the, the poker players uh, in the poker game um, cameo there. Uh, and he loved playing poker, uh, played all the time, like online poker as well. And he was great at it. Uh, uh, never played with them because I'm smart and uh, didn't want to lose any money. Um, uh, but but heavy metal, I mean, you know, Joel was a rocker at heart, and Rick was, you know, a uh, rocker as well. Like Joel would, um, I think Joel played drums early on. I think Joel wanted to to play drums and and uh, ask his dad for a, a drum set, and his dad said, "I'll get you. I'll give you a drum set after you learn piano." So he, you know, learned piano which is, you know, that was good too, but yeah. I think he wanted just to play, to be a drummer. So whenever we get to do a drum solo in something, it was kind of revisiting his roots. But the heavy metal thing, you know, that was just, I think Joel was looking for an excuse to use it whenever he could. So, you know, the question is, why didn't he use heavy metal as often as he did? Well, I think the, yeah, and that's that's certainly a fair question. I think if, if any species is going to... Um... I don't know how I want to put it. Like the Wraith would do it, <laughs> you know, yeah. absolutely. And the Wraith did get more percussiony as the show went on, mm -hmm. especially with Satita. It kind of, Joel talked about kind of, we talked about with him kind of rebranding the Wraith's sound. They didn't like, it didn't completely transform, but it was mm -hmm. definitely more percussive from that point forward. Yeah. So, and, and, and yeah. And Vegas kind of takes that further. John 42, 42. will there be a remastered complete soundtrack to all Stargate at some point, similar to these huge box sets like the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings have done? I certainly hope so. But, uh, you know, I, as the, com the composer is usually the last person to have any say in, in things like this, uh, especially, uh, you know, with rights being you know owned by by studios or, or having been uh sold here and there uh and i'm just being speaking in general mm -hmm. but um you know especially with, with joel being gone as well it's not like he's around to be able to oversee and push that kind of thing through so it's doubly uh difficult for things like that to to happen i know there there's desire on a lot of people's parts to to do stuff like that it's just uh you know even even the library of music while it exists in in different places it's uh you know again you're 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 dealing with a situation where the composer and the music editor that they manage that library are both gone and no uh, like, where are they yeah so. i don't even know you know where all the masters are and who uh owns them and uh who who's who would have the the desire and the ability to push something like that through and it is an investment in in money to do that kind of thing because I mean soundtrack sales, CD sales are are not what they used to be. It's true. Uh, they were never great, and they're certainly less so now. So um, you know, you'd have to find someone that that really believed in the project. And, and and I'm not saying I don't. I'm just not the person that has any control in that kind of situation. Okay. So Joel, Joel had an estate, right? The, would would it be interest uh, something that I should potentially 
uh, look into pursuing? Because, like, um, the next question here, the Fred, do you have the audio track of Gauntlet's ending, the most beautiful piece of soundtrack we've ever heard? I would have to agree that the Gauntlet end theme is, in my opinion, his his best piece of work. And, you know, I, I would love to do whatever I could to help uh, pursue getting that content out there to fans in a purchasable form. Do you think that's that's something that is feasible for me and others to look into? I'd love to see it happen. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever I can to help make that happen. But that but my own personal involvement in that aspect is, is very limited. So um, but I'd, I'd love to see someone do it. That's for sure. I, I'd do it for free man, just to get that out there. Absolutely. Ugly Pig. Um, sometimes SG-1 episodes had different music cues between the broadcast version and the seamless version, the ending of Frozen, for example. Uh, what would the reason for this be? Well, reason is, um, yeah, episodic version. You have a um, commercial break and you'd have, uh, you know, the music would generally ramp up to the commercial uh, to create suspense, to want you to come back after the commercial, sit through the commercial, <laughs> uh, different function there. And then commercial, you're back in and, um, you know, maybe there's, now now that the commercial has passed, maybe there's no reason to have music at all. So if you, when they did the seamless version, they would obviously get rid of the commercial gap and you have the two, you know, the end of one scene, the beginning of the next butted against each other. It would sound really weird to have this dramatic ramp and then suddenly stop. So we would do whatever we could to, uh, to polish those after the fact. Uh, and it was the kind of thing that would happen while we were working on new episodes. So it wasn't always, not to say we didn't give it the attention it deserved, no. but sometimes we're looking for, uh, rather than, um, you know, find a, you know, uh, write a whole new piece of music, we'd kind of edit, Rick, music editor, would edit uh, a transition that would kind of help bridge those gaps. And sometimes that meant it was just easier or made more sense to get a new piece of music that would uh, uh, cover that, you know, cross through those scenes. Basically, you know, if you, the seamless version became a whole new show. It just had a different, uh, you know, a different feel, a different, you know, dramatic intent of the music because you weren't trying to create that ramp to the commercial. That's, that's fair. Um, were, so the, so when, when you were originally working on an episode, the, the version with the commercial breaks would be sent up. And then later on when the DVD version was going to come out, that's when you would get to the others. It could have been months later or a year later, you know? Yeah. And then kind of go back and, and, uh, take a look and see what worked and what didn't, and then make adjustments accordingly. Absolutely. Or, you know what? I really didn't like this piece over here. Can I please go in and change it now? <laughs> Did you ever sneak any edits like that in? Uh, I don't think so. I don't remember <laughs> doing so. Okay. I think at that point, you know, um, you know, try to try to move on. Absolutely. Always, you know, during this whole time, we're working on, yeah. you know, a couple new series, a couple, se- you know, the new episodes, episodes. of the you know, two series at the same time. So, Going back to something that was, you know, uh, we had finished a long time ago was we'd still make sure it worked, but you know, I wouldn't wouldn't go back to the drawing board on that. Mm-hmm. Ian wants to know: Can you talk at all about the instrument the instrumentation in SGU, specifically the wah wah that kicks off the uh, intro theme in the first episode? 
Um, I, I, you know, wasn't there for that. Um, I do know that Joel uh, used a lot of new production techniques, a lot of recording techniques, guitar, manipulated a guitar and a lot of synthesizers. He had this great, uh, this wall of uh, uh, synthes analog synthesizers that he mm. uh, had as assistant build, um, you know, got into some really cool sounds because he was playing with synthesizers, you know, when he was a teenager and, you know, got to he even mm. uh, program the synth sounds on uh, Star Trek movies. Not too he much chip off the old block, was he? Yeah. Jeez. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, I couldn't tell you exactly what that was, but I know it was, uh, you know, Joel just had fun playing with new sounds. It's one of those things. That he told me what that instrument was. I think it's like a stringed instrument of some kind that he's running a bow over. I'm not entirely sure. I can't remember for the life of me what it was. Um, ben Fix, did you slip in any homage to Stargate? With your Blizzard music or audio work, Blizzard games are known to have all kinds of Easter eggs. Uh, no, only, you know, I mean, I think, uh, and I, I wouldn't do that kind of thing because, I mean, you're you're talking about, uh, you know, one with the Blizzard stuff, we're trying to create, you know, a, a new sound, a new franchise. Uh, but I think that you know, people will always mentioned to me oh that the thing you did sounds like something from stargate and 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 i realized that it's just it's imprinted in my uh musical dna you know this the stuff we did and in that sci-fi thing so you'll probably hear stuff that uh yeah actually somebody uh somebody sent me uh a scene from stargate that they said oh i, I can hear the overwatch theme in here <laughs> uh, and i'm like i'm listening in Stargate, which was, we're talking an episode that had been written. It preceded. I was at Atlantis, like uh, written years before yeah. Overwatch. And, uh, and I, I listened to it and sure enough, there is the Overwatch theme, like sounds a lot like it. And I, I, I pointed out a couple things. One, the Overwatch theme you're referring to is not the one that I wrote. Uh, <laughs> and this, <laughs> so you can't blame me. Um, but, uh, and this was written years before. So over, you know, uh, Stargate didn't copy Overwatch. Uh, there, with the musical language, the film music language, there are always like just certain, certain things uh, that we kind of identify as being a heroic motif or something Phrases, that yeah. is, is going to remind people of things. Uh, and it's, it's not intentional, um, but, but for anyone to think that uh, I'm paying tribute to Stargate is, I don't take that as a bad thing. I think, uh, you know, the, my love for the show and the years I spent on it uh, are always something that uh, I carry with me. Yeah. So any, I, I think the point is that that any kind of uh, deliberate, and any kind of audio transfer is more or less unintentional, right? Yeah. And I, I couldn't legally do that if I wanted yeah. to, because, you know, if you have like something that's identifiable enough, that's legally owned by another company, mm -hmm. then... I could get sued for that and you know <laughs> it's not worth it so i it's not my intention to do that absolutely so, no. uh it, but also human beings were built to decipher codes from chaos so it's no. easy for us to hear things that you know this this sounds a lot like it and there's there's only so many kinds of phrases that are out there and music evolves over time and so from decade to decade a lot of things sound very similar because we're all jumping off one another as we learn stuff 
So. And it's a musical, it is a language. It is, you know, the, the phrases we use musically are derived from the things that, you know, we learn from watching the movies we loved and, and hearing the soundtracks we love, you know, certain things like to try to evoke a similar emotion to something we felt when we watched a, a movie or a show, it's possible you're going to grab the same chords or some kind of variation on them because uh, those chords are going to evoke that very specific emotion. We're, we're speaking with the music. So in order for to, to get very specific in what we're saying, sometimes you have to, you know, the language gets very specific and therefore uh, easy to spot similarities between franchises or even over decades of, of time. It was such a privilege to have you compose the music for this project. Um, having the Stargate DNA, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the baseline of that is the music. Uh, inside this show um, has been a dream come true for me. Uh, and it, it was interesting to hear because... I, I think I told you, I mean, I want it to sound like Stargates, uh, like the SG-1 theme, but obviously we can't have the SG-1 theme. Um, how how long did that that sound take, th that, that melody take that to melody mature in your mind? Sure. Because I, I wrote you one day and like one or two days later you said, I, I basically got it. I just have to hammer it out. And I was like, what? That thing matured overnight. I mean, not or maybe not even. It yeah, it, it's, um, I think that the shows will, the time I spent in that world will forever be imprinted on my brain in a good way. So, um, you know, I, I fell right back into it and it was, it was fun to have the opportunity to do that. So thank you for that. And, you know, and you've been a great friend since we met at the, the Stargate Continuum premiere. Yes, all those San years Diego ago. in 2008. Uh, so when you asked me to to write something for you, I not the kind of thing I normally do, but I, I just didn't didn't hesitate in this case. So. It, it meant the world to me, and it's uh, I I love listening to it three or four times every weekend. So it it means so much to me that uh, you did it, and it means so much to me that you came on and you know gave us uh, so much of your time this weekend to talk with to talk with fans. Uh, if there is going to be uh, an SG four, a, a fourth a fourth Stargate series, would you be on board to compose for it? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I wish Joel was still here, and Joel would be able to take the reins on something like that. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, the opportunity to dive back into that universe would be, uh, would be really a, a credible homecoming. And I, I hope the uh, opportunity might arise. Fantastic. I hope so too, my friend. I um, thank you again for, for taking the time to talk with us and um you know what? Uh, I'd I'd love to to have you back on in the future, and uh, just thank you so much for everything. It's it's been a, such a treat to have you. Thank you. It's been a treat to be here. So I'll I'll give you a ring in a little bit, buddy. But I'm going to go ahead and uh, and wrap up the show. Sounds good. Thanks, Neil. I appreciate your time. Thank you. You be well, Neil Acree, everyone. Composer of Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, and Stargate Universe. And 
a ton of other projects. You need to check out this guy's IMDb. He is prolific. And I definitely recommend um, his album, The Velvet Machine, which I will be linking uh, below the Amazon link. Uh, the MP3 album and audio CD are both available on Amazon. I think there's a streaming version as well if you have, um, if you have Amazon Music Unlimited. Check it out. It's really cool. That's all that I have pretty much for you. Um, before I do let you go here, if you like what you've seen in this episode, I would appreciate it if you'd click the like button. It really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. And please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend or a music fan. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. If you plan to watch live, I recommend giving the bell icon a click so you'll be the first to know of any schedule changes, which could happen all the time. And keep in mind, clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days on the both Dialed the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. I really appreciate you sticking around. I want to thank our moderators, Summer, Ian, Tracy, Keith, Jeremy. You guys are fantastic. Big thanks to my production assistants, Jennifer and uh, Linda, the Gate Gabber. Tomorrow, we have another two sessions for you at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Miss Terrell Rothery will be joining us, Dr. Janet Frazier herself. And then at 3 p.m. Pacific time, Mr. Darren Sumner, founder, owner, managing editor, GateWorld.net, will be joining me for a round of uh, Stargate trivia. 20 questions. Darren, I am coming for you. That's all I have for you today, folks. I really appreciate uh, you sticking around uh, for the show this weekend. And um, it means a great deal to me that uh, that our uh, audience is continuing to grow. I think if we haven't cracked it yet, we are about to crack it. 5,000, uh, about to crack 5,000 subscribers. We're 14 away. So if you enjoy the show, please consider subscribing. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gates. I appreciate your time, and you know what? I see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acri. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo designed by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. <laughs>